I wonder if after hearing this reading, you're wondering why I've titled this Judgments of Mercy. I trust that by the time we finish exploring this passage, uh, you'll see why. Like the first set of judgments we saw in the seven seals, uh, I'm taking this, uh, as I said a few weeks ago, we can read this as a chronology of actual events to happen, uh, either in the past or in the future of history, uh, or we see it as a symbolism that is describing an aspect of uh, God's judgment and how God works out his judgments in the world. Uh, I'm taking that, that view, uh, but I, like I said, even if you take the view that these are describing a sequence of historical events, uh, you still need to look at them and say, why? Why are they like this? What are, we, what are we being taught about the nature of God's judgment by them? We saw in the, uh, the seals the first aspect of God's judgment, which was hope. It's through the actions of judgment that God is gathering and sanctifying a holy people for himself. Uh, we saw that we are not removed or immune from the suffering that comes from living in this world where God has handed us over to the outworking of our sin. That includes not just the suffering that comes out of human actions, the suffering that comes from being in a creation subjected to futility, but also the suffering that comes from being Christ's people in a world that's hostile to God. But we saw that we have hope in the midst of suffering. Our foundation for hope was laid when Jesus went to the cross, willingly giving himself over to suffering, to the hands of evil men who crucified him. He entered into the deepest depths of human pain and suffering as he bore our sins in his body. It was through that extreme suffering that God accomplished our salvation. That judgment at the cross was a judgment of hope. All of our sins were judged in him. God was seen to be perfectly just and at the same time we see the extent of his grace and mercy that through that judgment anyone who puts their faith in Jesus is declared righteous. In him. We saw that because of that foundation of Christ crucified, suffered for us and risen, we can now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, actually rejoice in our sufferings because we know that rather than destroying us, it's all achieving a glory that far outweighs what we go through. So we shouldn't be afraid to describe the things that happen in the world as God's judgments. Even though we may struggle to come to terms and to, to, hand, to work out why a loving God allows these things to happen. Faith, we're told, is the assurance of things hoped for, of things that we do not see. God's word tells us the Father is working for our good through these judgments. So trusting his word will enable us to have 
that hope and to live life uh, with confidence as we see the hope that he gives us. These seven trumpets show us another aspect of what God is accomplishing through judgments. And you see that the picture there looks very similar to the previous one because these seven trumpets follow a very similar pattern to the seven seals. And you see also I've still got the crown overall, that vision of the Father on his throne, Christ the Lamb who was slain, who was seated with his Father over over all things, with authority over all things, that's still there as John sees these trumpets being blown. These seven trumpets show us an aspect of God's judgment in that they are a call to wake up to repentance and faith. And so it's in this sense that they are judgments of mercy. God is holding back the fullness of his wrath, patiently giving people every opportunity they need to respond to his grace. Even though it's the opposite of what they deserve, of what we deserve. He would have been perfectly right, perfectly just to have destroyed the human race the moment we sinned in Adam. That's what the flood, Noah's flood was a picture of. God's verdict was that none were righteous and his justice demanded that we all be wiped from the face of the earth. Yet he showed mercy He used Noah, who is called a preacher of righteousness in the New Testament. He warned his generation of the coming judgment and then he saved the human race through Noah, even though no one deserved it. So that's why these judgments are symbolised by trumpets. In ancient cities, trumpets were the early warning system the watchmen on the walls, if they saw uh, the enemy approaching, they would blow their trumpet to get the citizens' attention and to warn them of what was coming and to give them time to prepare. The trumpet blast essentially said, act now or you will be destroyed when the judgment comes. These seven trumpets well, at least the first six, are a foretaste of the coming final judgment when Jesus returns. See what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That last trumpet there is the announcement that all of God's enemies have been made his footstool. That victory is complete. Do you feel fearful about that day? If you're trusting in Jesus, you have every reason to not be fearful. Instead, to look forward to it with joyful anticipation because that will be our resurrection. We will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, to be like Jesus. That joyful anticipation enables us to live triumphantly even in the face of 
death. See what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The trumpet again. How is it that we can have such a hope that carries us through the grief and the griefs of this life? Because we've heard the preemptive trumpet blasts sounding around us that have woken us up to the reality that apart from Christ and called to believe in him, we lost. So these seven trumpets will tell us two ways that this call has come through the suffering of the world and through the proclamation of the gospel and we'll unpack the second one in the next uh, couple of weeks. So let's look at how these trumpets are trumpets of mercy. First, note how these seven trumpets are linked in a way with the seven seals. They come immediately after the opening of the seventh seal or at least half an hour later. We saw that the seventh seal corresponded to the seventh day of creation, marking the completion of God's work in Jesus Christ for salvation and the Sabbath rest into which we enter by faith in Christ. However, this half an hour of silence in heaven isn't a time of inactivity. The work of salvation is complete, but the work of gathering God's chosen people, symbolised by the 144,000 and by the great uncountable multitude, that continues to happen throughout history. So there are, there are two things that happen in the silence. First, these seven angels before the throne are given their trumpets. Notice how the angels stand before the throne of God, spoken in the present tense. It's the first time they're mentioned, however, remember there were other groups of seven before the throne in previous visions. There were seven lampstands representing the seven churches. There were the seven blazing torches representing the Holy Spirit being sent out into the world. So we shouldn't be surprised then that these seven angels blowing their trumpets are somehow connected to the work of the Holy Spirit through the church. Secondly, something astounding happens which tells us the first thing about our place in the midst of these judgments. The altar here 
the golden altar. It's not the altar of sacrifice. This is the altar of incense, which stood in the holy place before the curtain which had the throne, the mercy seat behind it. The priests would come in with incense and they would put incense on the coals on this altar and the tabernacle would be filled with this sweet-smelling smoke that symbolised the prayers of God's people. And the smoke would fill the tabernacle and then would leak out and rise up into the sky. And it was this rising, sweet-smelling smoke that was a constant reminder to the people that their prayers were accepted by the Lord. So this gives us another angle on why there's silence. Heaven falls silent because God has stopped speaking, not because he's run out of things to say, but because he's listening to the prayers of his saints. What a beautiful, comforting, assuring picture. The Father delights to hear the requests of his beloved children. He doesn't speak over us. He doesn't drown us out with his thunderous voice. He's quiet. He stoops down and he listens as we pray to him. He hears our cries. But then see what happens next in verse 5. The silence then is broken by the fire from the altar that's thrown down onto the earth. And those things that symbolise God's voice, thunder, rumblings, lightning, earthquakes. They're the things that John had heard coming from the throne. They resume. So if the silence was a picture of prayer being heard by God, this is a picture of God answering prayer. God listens to the saints And then he responds in mighty acts of judgment and salvation. Prayer isn't us getting God to do what we want him to do. We don't twist his arm. We don't give him information he didn't already know. Prayer, rather, is the first gift that God gives us to be participants in what he's doing instead of merely acting in his sovereignty and leaving us to work out what the heck's going on, he gives us insight into the mystery of his will. He tells us something of what he's planning to do so that we may then come to him and pray according to his will. Why is it that we can pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Not because we've worked it out, not, it's not mere wishful thinking, but because we know God has told us, he's ensured us that his name is hallowed and will be hallowed. His kingdom will be done. His kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth. It's not a matter of whether or not it'll happen, it's just a matter of the timing, when will we see it happen? So we can pray with confidence, knowing that our prayers are not only heard, but are answered. 
And that should give us confidence to pray not just about the smaller things and the personal things in our own lives. It should give us a confidence to pray about the big scale things that are happening in the world. As 1 Timothy 2 tells us, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. See the motivation there for audacious prayers about kings and nations. God's revealed will that tells us that that kind of prayer is pleasing to him. Why? Because of his revealed will that tells us that his purpose is for all peoples, all nations to hear the gospel and be saved. How do we know that? Through all the promises that we have in the scriptures. So God has stated his intention which he could have chosen to accomplish without us and which will no doubt will come to pass no matter what we do, yet he calls us to pray for these things. Not, not so much because our prayer makes it happen, but because he delights to draw us in, to reveal his will to us, to make us participants in his work. What a wonderful privilege. How should that impact our prayer life, knowing that? It should transform it from a burden, something we feel is a religious duty or something we do to make ourselves feel better, into something through which we see ourselves as sons and daughters engaged in the Father's mission, in the Father's work. So something that we do not out of guilt or obligation, but out of delight. So the prayers of the saints, they're an integral part of God's judgments of mercy. As we come before the throne to intercede, for one another, for the church, for those involved in gospel proclamation, for the world around us. It's the world that Jesus came to save. Amos 3 tells us, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Judgment is coming, but before the judgment, God speaks through his prophets. And our first response to that revelation of God's will through the prophets should be to pray to be confident that as we pray, God's will in the world is unfolded in answer to our prayers. So, the first four trumpets. They're like the first four seals. 
They're a set of different but related judgments. Maybe these first four angels are the four angels that John saw back in chapter 7 at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds and stopping them from harming creation. Here we see some of that judgment now being released. But note that it's still limited. In every case, it's a third of creation that is destroyed. So this isn't the final judgment when creation is undone, it's only a foretaste of what is to come. So they're like the first four seals in that sense, but they're different from the first four seals, the four horsemen, in that the horsemen were judgments that were coming through the hands of sinful men, conquest and war uh, and famine and death. Here we have a different pattern. Judgment comes directly from heaven down to earth. Hail and fire and blood burning up the plants. Then a meteorite, if that's what it is, coming down and turning the seas to blood. A star falling from heaven, turning fresh waters bitter. Now, wormwood is a plant and it's extremely bitter in taste. Then the heavenly bodies are struck, bringing darkness on the earth. So this is a picture of creation, creation that's groaning, creation that's threatening to come apart under the weight of God's wrath and anticipating the day when it will be completely undone and then replaced or renewed with a new heavens and a new earth, but not yet. Now, these judgments, as you heard them, and if you know your Old Testament stories, they echo the stories of judgment in the Old Testament. Notably, the ten plagues that the Lord sent upon Egypt when he redeemed his people. The Lord had a twofold purpose in the the Egyptian plagues. Firstly, it was to save his people. But he could have done that in one move. He could have just softened the heart of Pharaoh and he would have let them go without having to destroy Egypt completely. But his purpose was bigger because it involved not just Israel, It involved the nations. So, he hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to bring the plagues for a very specific reason. And here it is. This is God speaking to Pharaoh. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So for the Israelites, the Egyptian plagues were judgments of hope because through them they were saved, made God's people. For the Egyptians, they were judgments of mercy because through them the Lord was making himself known to them as the one true God. Every plague had a different aspect of the land and the life of the Egyptians and for each of these areas the Egyptians had their own gods, so-called gods, uh, who they believed were overseeing and influencing those aspects of life. So the plagues were direct attacks on the Egyptian gods, showing them to be powerless against the Lord who reigns over the whole earth. Why did he want Pharaoh to know who he is? Because, as we've heard, he desires all peoples to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God loved Pharaoh. God desired Pharaoh to come in repentance and faith. Even evil kings and pharaohs and peoples and nations outside of Israel, God was concerned with and wanted his name to be proclaimed to them. Now, with the fifth, sixth and seventh seals, we're shown like we were, sorry, with the fifth, sixth and seventh trumpets, just like with the seven seals, we see the spiritual realities of what Jesus is accomplishing through the physical, visible judgments of the first four. Now, these uh, are much longer than the first four trumpets. So, today we'll only look at trumpet five and in the coming weeks we'll look at six and seven. The first thing to notice about what happens with the fifth trumpet is that it also echoes judgments from the Old Testament. Firstly, the book of Joel. Joel talks about judgment that's coming and he describes it as a locust plague using very similar language as you can see there. So Joel says, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, they run As with the running of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. So clearly these uh, these armies coming out of the bottomless pits are meant to make us think of the armies that came swarmed down like locusts uh, upon Israel and Judah. Now the purpose of Joel's prophecy was to call people to repentance. So he goes on, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering 
for the Lord your God. You see, the locust plague would come and completely strip the crops, completely strip the vines. So he's saying, let us turn in repentance to the Lord and in the midst of judgment, ask for his mercy, that there may still be grain and still be wine left. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. There's the trumpet blast again, calling people to come and know mercy so that there will be no need for them to face the full judgment. The second thing to notice about this fifth seal is we see the agency through which this judgment comes. There in verse 11. The angel of the bottomless pit is called Abaddon and Apollyon, which means destroyer. They're names that describe Satan. Satan is the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, in contrast to Jesus who comes to give abundant life. So we're to see that Satan is in some way behind this uh, chaos and suffering uh, of the world. Now, verses 5 and 6 should also make us think of something in the Old Testament a great picture of suffering. Does anyone know who it might be alluding to? Someone who was tormented for months, his torment was unbearable, but he didn't die. He couldn't die, even though he longed longed for it. It's Job. Job suffered for months. We don't know exact length, but the implication is it was for months at the hand of Satan. Satan was allowed to take everything from him except his life. But what we also know from the book of Job is that behind Satan's actions was the hand of the Lord. It was the Lord who brought Job to his attention. It was the Lord who put limits on what Satan was able to do to him. And when the Lord's purpose was complete for Job, he took Satan away and he restored Job. See, Satan can do nothing except what the Lord allows. And everything that he does will ultimately accomplish the Lord's will. And we see this here in the fifth trumpet. Some people uh, think that this star falling from heaven to earth is Satan and from that comes the idea of Satan being a fallen angel. But I think firstly this is imagery that's used to communicate, visual imagery used to communicate the same thing we saw in the first four trumpets that this is judgement coming from heaven down to earth, so too this is God's judgment coming upon the earth. 
But if we're going to see this as representing someone, I think we need to remember what Jesus said in 1 verse 18, I have the keys of death and Hades. What I shut, no one can open. What I open, no one can shut. And then later in Revelation, Jesus describes himself as the bright morning star. So, it's not Satan who opens the pit. In fact, Satan is the angel of the armies who are in the pit. He's locked in the pit. He's only released when God gives him permission to come out. So, this action of judgment is where God gives Satan some degree of power and authority in the world, but only to be used by God's sovereign hand as this instrument of judgment. He may be king over the locust armies, but he's not king over the earth and he does not have the power over life and death. He may cause suffering, but he cannot kill the body. God alone gives life and takes it away. Satan is not to be feared, as if he has free reign or authority over us. Jesus, not Satan, is the king of all principalities and powers in the heavenly places. As we sang in our opening hymn, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. The story goes that Martin Luther, who was being attacked by Satan, woke up one night and he saw a vision of Satan at his, the end of his bed and he said, not you again, and he rolled over and went back to sleep because he knew the victory he had in Christ. So, judgments. These days, preachers get into trouble if they even hint that tragedies, natural disasters might be a judgement from God. And this sermon's going up on YouTube, so who knows, someone might complain. We don't like that idea of the bad things that happen in the world and in life as being God's judgement for two reasons. Because we've been lulled into this belief that human beings are basically good and so we don't deserve to suffer in any way but secondly because we have a very narrow view of judgement. We think that judgement is always vengeance, it's always retribution, which is designed just to balance the scales of justice, to give sinners what they deserve. So we we dislike the idea of judgement because we think that we're doing okay and we don't deserve it, And so we think that God is being unfair if he continues to act in judgement in the world today. But as we've seen, that's not the aspect of God's judgement that's being portrayed here. That will come when the scales are balanced. But here, judgement is this clarion trumpet blast, a call to wake up 
to see that the final judgment is yet to come and you've been given time to repent. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a dead world. Jesus himself spoke in this way. When asked about a terrible thing that had happened, when Pilate slaughtered people while they were offering their sacrifices, his answer wasn't probably the one that we would give. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus compounds the dilemma by adding to it a natural disaster of the tower falling and killing 18 people. So while that first incident might have stirred us up to call for vengeance against Rome, the second could only be attributed to God, who's sovereign over all things, who decided whether or not that tower will fall at that time. But see his response. It wasn't to say God had nothing to do with it. Or, just to let you know, God wasn't punishing those people for their sins. It was just a unfortunate case of bad luck. No, what does he do? He used both as a call to sinners to repent. Whatever other part these events may have played in God's purposes, Jesus said we should see them as small foretastes or warnings of the wrath that is to come and as a gracious, merciful call from God to turn to him in repentance and to put our faith in Jesus. Jesus who willingly and gladly saves us from the wrath to come. So have you repented and trusted in him? The way we speak about tragedy and suffering in this life is very important because it will shape the way that we communicate the gospel and what kind of gospel it is that we proclaim. And that's what we'll come to in the sixth trumpet. We'll see that judgments in creation are one part of what God is doing to call people to himself. The other is the church, God's people who are called to be witnesses, to testify to Jesus in the world. And that's what we'll be looking at in the next two weeks. Let's pray.